Broadcasting from the 10 Hudson Square building, home of WNYC Radio in Soho, New York, welcome to Brand on Purpose, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies and organizations. My guest today is Neil Litvak. Neil is the chief marketing officer of the American Red Cross. Since its founding in 1881, the Red Cross name has become synonymous with disaster relief, supporting victims with food, shelter, and emotional support. But that's not all the Red Cross does, of course. The organization also supplies about 40% of the nation's blood through donations, teaches skills that saves lives, provides international humanitarian aid, and supports military members and their families. Today, I'm talking to the guy who's tasked with navigating in a very complex organization and the communicating the story behind what's becoming a very modern Red Cross organization. Prior to his current role, Neil was chief development officer for the Red Cross, a role in which he led the organization's enterprise fundraising, which included responsibility for a revenue goal of $600 million and an operating budget of $40 million. During his tenure, the organization also raised $2.7 billion in additional funds for major disasters. Neil joined the American Red Cross in 2009 as chief of staff. Neil, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's good to be here. And hopefully I didn't botch that introduction or, or misstate anything. You did not. Great. Okay, so we're off to a good start. So I think there's a little bit of confusion amongst most Americans. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, the American Red Cross only supports disasters and does a lot of blood drives, right? And you do those things. But if you can just kind of take us back to how the organization was founded, who runs the organization. I know there's about 19,000 paid employees, including biomedical services, humanitarian services, training services, and national headquarters staff. You have a massive operating budget of about $3 billion, and you have more than 300,000 volunteers. And I don't know whether or not the U.S. government runs, funds, or is actually a recipient of services of Red Cross. So if you can kind of walk us through that, that's, I think, a great place to start. The organization has been around for over 100 years. It was founded by Clara Barton, which is a name that you probably haven't heard since elementary school. And it has functioned as a part of the American fabric for all those years, through wartime, through peacetime, through different political upheavals. The Red Cross has really been there for Americans in times of need during that entire period. It's run today by Gail McGovern, who has been head of the Red Cross for the last 12 years and who I actually had the pleasure of working for prior to the Red Cross at a company called Fidelity Investments. The business model is one that I think would surprise many people. As you said, most people think of the Red Cross as the organization that responds to major disasters and hosts blood drives all over the country. We are much broader than that even. We respond to disasters, large and small, all year long. So that in addition to the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the wildfires that we get a lot of press for, we're responding to disasters pretty much every day across the country, the bulk of which are house fires. We respond to probably over 64,000 disasters each year. And candidly, to a family that's lost their home in a house fire, it is just as much of a major disaster for them as, as it would be if they were one of the families that was affected by one of the major disasters like a hurricane. We also, as you said, are responsible for 40% of the nation's blood supply. 
Again, the Red Cross responds to people in need, and the need for blood is constant, and it's great. Right now, we are supplying over 4 million units a year. It's about 40% of the nation's blood supply, and the bulk of the recipients are patients in hospitals, and that includes people who are undergoing chemotherapy and other types of treatment for cancer. We also train thousands of people each year in areas such as first aid, CPR, swimming, and babysitting, and we prepare communities to be more resilient so that when disaster hits, they can weather the the issues that follow as well as possible and be prepared to recover as quickly as possible. So it's a really broad mission. It's probably not one that you would have designed if you started with a blank page, but over the years and with different things happening in America's history, the Red Cross has taken on a variety of responsibilities that are really fundamental to the needs of the of the American public. The one additional thing I'll mention, because it was one of the things that you asked about, we are not government funded. We rely uh, 100% on the donations of both money, time, and blood from the American public. And so our organization is fully reliant on the generosity of Americans from coast to coast. I can't think of any organization, when you were speaking, I was trying to think of an organization that touches almost every American or someone we know. So I think about what you're saying. I've been certified multiple times by the Red Cross and CPR and first aid. I got my lifeguard training as a kid through the Red Cross. I ran for the Red Cross for Chicago and the Chicago Marathon, which we talked about off air, which is an amazing experience and an incredible team in Chicago and that region. And unfortunately, we, my wife and I have friends in Vermont who did have a house fire and the Red Cross was there immediately and was an incredible partner to them and a really, really, really tough time of need. Thankfully, there are no casualties, but it is still very traumatic to lose all of your belongings when your house burns down to the ground. You have nowhere to stay. It's really unlike any other organization. So just going back to the government thing, so, but you work hand in glove with the government, right? It sounds like you've obviously have a very close relationship, especially when it comes to disaster relief. We do. I would say that we view the government as our partner in disaster relief. We work hand in hand with them in terms of the work that goes on after a disaster. We have to. We are generally responsible for the sheltering and the feeding and the hope, quite frankly, that is needed following a disaster. That includes things like medical needs and includes things like prescriptions and what one does with pets, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, the, the whole set of activities has to be coordinated very, very closely with the work that the government is doing following a disaster. And in your role, how are you keeping the Red Cross top of mind in what I would say has become, and maybe I'm totally wrong, this is anecdotal, I feel like this is probably one of the most competitive environments ever, if that's the right word to use, when it comes to charities. GoFundMe is just one component of it, but I feel like, especially this time of year, but all throughout year, whether it is my local synagogue or other charities or my alma mater and other institutions, how do you stay relevant and modern and how do you stay top of mind when you're competing with or complementing those other organizations that are also asking for dollars? You're absolutely right. It is an ongoing challenge to attract donors to the Red Cross, in part because the 
giving universe has become so fragmented. There are so many different charities and there are so many different needs that are asking for support and quite frankly, are good causes. And so the American public is looking at a, at a range of choice that is really unprecedented. For us, during a major disaster, I would say that it's probably less difficult to ask for people's support. We tend to get a great boost of fundraising support from just the, the news and from the coverage of disasters. And people are incredibly generous in terms of reaching into their pockets and wanting to do something to help those people in need. But the challenge for us is really how do we attract money to the Red Cross when it, there isn't a major disaster? The money that we tend to attract from major disasters, we use for those major disasters. And yet we respond to disasters large and small all year long. And that requires funding as well. Your example of the single family house fire is probably a good one. And so we try very hard to bring that need to the forefront of people and to make sure that we're making people aware of some of the good work that we do when that need arises. Part of an example of, of that would be to make sure that the, that the public is aware that in addition to responding or helping people who have lost their home to a fire, we are actually out there every day, every week of the year, installing free smoke alarms in homes across the country, particularly in vulnerable neighborhoods where there's not a high concentration of smoke alarms, because we found that in situations where there is a working smoke alarm, 60% of the time, injury or death is averted as a result of a fire. And so bringing that need to the forefront, asking for support for the work that we do in that area is probably a good example of how we support our disaster response work outside of a major disaster. When I was speaking to the Clinton Foundation a few weeks ago, one of the things that's been a key to their success has been partnering with the entertainment community and kind of pop culture, for lack of a better kind of expression. And I thought it was very smart of you to lean into that, I think probably more recently than ever, but I know that you've partnered with Bill Clinton, with Mary J. Blige, with Lady Gaga, and then, you know, your, what was it called? I think it was the hashtag for the throne campaign, right? Your Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, to, to, to encourage blood donations. Talk a little bit about how that's also helped keep you top of mind and separate you. We're obviously trying to attract donors from wherever we can, but on the in terms of our blood mission, obviously we're trying to attract as many new donors as possible. And, and new donors tend to come from primarily younger age groups. So we had the good fortune of being able to partner with HBO for their final season of Game of Thrones. HBO wanted very much to do something with the final season that also had a social responsibility component. They reached out to us and the two organizations planned a fabulous campaign called Bleed for the Throne. The American Red Cross was the recipient of a lot of HBO's promotion, both on air and social media, and also just the regular press. We had a 800-unit blood drive at the South by Southwest event in Austin, Texas. If you gave blood during that event, you had your name sung out by a 27-person choir dressed in medieval attire, and you got to sit on the actual Game of Thrones throne, which they flew into Austin for the event. It was a great 
promotion. Very creative, very inspired, very committed people working in it and around it. And the wonderful thing is that we were able to, during that campaign, generate 350,000 blood donations. And that included 60,000 from first-time blood donors across the country. I know you're not a medical expert, but for my reputation management geeks and crisis management geeks out there, I just have to ask this question. So two of your core values are impartiality and universality. And at the same time, I know that you're required to adhere to FDA's policy that gay men can't donate blood if they've had sex with another man in the last year. And I feel like just reading a few things that actually the Red Cross probably doesn't necessarily agree with that, but it's really up to the FDA. I have to imagine this is a very tough position for you and the organization to be in. How do you navigate situations like this just from a communications and marketing perspective? It is a difficult one. It's a regulation that is set down by the FDA. It is one that is is a challenge to blood banks all over the country, not only the Red Cross. What we have done, particularly in the recent year, is really begin to work much more closely with the FDA to have this policy revisited. It's not the only one that we are working on. As an example, if you were in the country of England in the 1980s, you're actually not allowed to give blood because of potential exposure to mad cow disease over 40 years ago. The reality is is that every blood donation that we get, we test in every possible way so that if there's anything that is problematic with the blood donation that we get, we catch it before we even ship it or break it into component parts and then ship. And so it's something that we're looking at really closely and we would love to see that policy overhauled at some point in the near future. It's also, I mean, I've given blood many times and I know that I'm a man of a few tattoos here and there. And I know that even if enough time hasn't passed after I've had a tattoo, I can't give blood either. Exactly. And there are restrictions if you've done international travel. It's, it's highly regulated. And I think much of that regulation is really important, but some of it is outdated and it needs to be relooked. And fortunately, fortunately, we've got good partners now at the FDA who are, who are taking the time to consider doing that with us and with the other blood banks across the country. And it sounds like it's a priority for the organization. And again, it goes back to people not understanding that the Red Cross is not the U.S. government, right? Exactly. And it is a priority. It's a priority for, for two reasons. One, we need all the donors we can get, quite frankly. And you know, restricting groups or restricting situations doesn't help us in our efforts to attract the life-saving blood that we need to help patients across the country. It's also important because to the extent that some policy like that upsets or alienates an individual or a group of individuals who don't necessarily see the sense in it, it doesn't help our recruitment efforts in that way either. So we're trying to be as modern, we're trying to be as forward-thinking as we possibly can, And the need for blood continues every single day of the year. It never ends. I mean, there's never a week that goes by that we don't have to generate a certain number of donations in order to meet the needs of hospitals across the country. You mentioned something earlier I just want to pick up on about cancer patients, uh, people who are going through chemotherapy. Is it true that about one quarter of the blood supply goes towards that patient population? It is true. About one quarter of the blood that we collect 
goes to patients who either have some form of blood cancer or who are undergoing chemotherapy treatments. And that's something that many people don't know. Even blood donors, when they roll up their sleeve and they give blood, I wonder if they actually are thinking about the fact that there's a good chance that their blood is going to somebody who is battling cancer and that it's fundamental to their ability to confront the disease. We are trying very hard to get that message across. In fact, this February, we're partnering with the American Cancer Society and these two wonderful, iconic not-for-profit brands are going out with messaging that lets the public know that patients who have cancer really do have a great need for blood. And to the extent that there are people who want to help friends, loved ones who have cancer and don't know what to do, giving blood is a great way to be able to sort of meet that need. And we have the ability to donate in someone's honor. We have the ability to message to them that a blood donation was made with them and their thoughts. And so we're trying very, very hard to bring this awareness to the American public and doing it through the combined efforts of two, as I said, really iconic brands in the not-for-profit space. Is this the Give Blood to Give Time campaign? It is. It's Give Blood to Give Time. We're going to be rolling it out for three weeks during the month of February. And we're really hopeful that the combination of the two organizations brings a lot of attention to the need for blood among cancer patients and also other other needs that cancer patients have, which they can support either through the Red Cross or through the American Cancer Society. So you've held very senior positions in the corporate world as well. You mentioned before you're working for your, your former boss, now boss again, who when you work together at Fidelity Investments, and I know that you've also worked in a private school, it must feel really pretty great to be able to apply skills that you learned in the commercial world to the nonprofit world. And I say that because I'm involved in a lot of nonprofit activities outside my day job. And I always say that while I love my day job, I love the trade craft, nothing gives me greater pleasure than seeing those skills that I didn't even realize I had be applied to society as a whole. I can't tell you how gratifying it is. I mean, it's something that from the day I set forth on a professional path out of business school, it was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to sort of cut my teeth as much as I could in the for-profit world and learn as much as I possibly could with the thought that I could bring some of those skills into the not-for-profit world where to some extent they haven't had the benefit or the financial support to develop those capabilities and to some extent don't have the ability to compete for resources like the for-profit companies do. And so being able to take that learning, those skills, and bring it to a not-for-profit environment where people are clearly the recipients in a positive way, it's totally gratifying. I would, at this point in my life, not even consider turning back and, and going back to for-profit. I will, I will retain my status as a not-for-profit employee for as long as I work, and probably after that as volunteer. Well, that's one of my career goals as well at some point in the future. Someone, someone said to me a few weeks ago, I'd never heard this before, but they acted like it's a common thing. They said, in your career, in your life, you learn, earn, and then return. And I thought that I was, love that. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And, and you do a lot. I'm an animal lover. I'm a, especially a huge dog lover. And you also do a lot in the animal community, right, with charities. I locally. do. God, I did not know you were a dog lover. You're, now you're really talking my language. So 
I actually sit on three different not-for-profit boards, all in the animal welfare space. I sit on the board of PetSmart Charities, which is a national charities associated with the PetSmart stores. And I sit on two local charities in the Boston area, the Animal Rescue League of Boston and Buddy Dog Humane Society. And again, it's, you know, I, I just love animals. And so my day job is helping people. My weekend and evening job is doing as much as I can for the pets in, in, in communities in both the Boston area and elsewhere. Well, when you have a chance after you listen to this podcast of us chatting, you should listen to the one where I interview the founder of Puppies Behind Bars. Um, where Oh, I heard about that, actually. I incredible. Somebody in our PR department told me that you had done that. That's wonderful. Yeah, and we work with them as well as a client, and it's been incredibly gratifying work. And in fact, we also had a team at the, I think it was the AKC Dog Show this past weekend, because uh, we would do some work with Royal Canin as well. Nothing brings people together. Nothing brings more joy than animals and especially dogs. I, I really believe that. Agreed. And they do need help. I mean, as passionate as you are and as passionate as I am, it's an area that needs a lot of support, both in terms of money and time from people. So it's great to be able to help. You mentioned it before, because there, there are a lot of animals and people's pets who get displaced in disasters. Does the Red Cross also provide services there or do you partner with other organizations? Both. In some cases, we do shelter animals in the same location where we're sheltering people and where we can't or where there's a prohibition against doing that. We work with partner organizations, animal organizations, to ensure that people's pets have a safe place to go during a disaster. It's a little bit frightening, but probably the biggest reason why people don't evacuate their homes during, a, for instance, a hurricane uh, or even a tornado that they know is coming is because they don't want to be separated from their pets. So making sure that those needs are met are fundamental to keeping not only animals safe, but people too. As a pet owner myself, I can understand that because they're, they're members of the family. Exactly. And people who don't have that experience can't quite understand that. You, are, you would put your life on the line for your pet, but it happens. It happens all too often. And I totally get that. I get it too. And I've got two Labrador Retriever mixes who are staring at me right now who absolutely are happy to hear that. <laughs> so explain also, so look, when I was traveling in England last week, I saw there was a sign for the British Red Cross. Is there an association there? Is it a loose association or affiliation? How do you work with other Red Cross organizations around the world? It's a great question. So there's an international organization called the International Federation of the Red Cross. And there are probably at this point, almost, I think almost 90 Red Cross societies around the world. Each country society has a similar but slightly different mission. So for instance, in places like Mexico, as an example, the Mexican Red Cross actually runs the National Ambulance Service. In places like Britain, there's not a blood mission, but there is a major amount of work that they do in the home and healthcare space. It's very similar in different places. It's built around the response to need, but depending on the situation in each country and, the, and some of the services that the government does or doesn't provide, the different Red Cross societies do different things. The common element is that they're all there in, in times of need. They all rely on the generosity of both donors in terms of money, as well as donors in terms of time. Every one of those Red Cross societies is probably 96% or more dependent on the good work of volunteers to be able to carry out their mission. 
Right. And in certain countries, in Muslim countries, it's a crescent, right? And in Israel, it's a star of David. It's not a cross because of sensitivities, of course, associated with... That's correct. And then there's, believe it or not, in Israel, the the star of David is the symbol, and that society is called Magan David Adam. Do you ever envision a future where the cross will be replaced with something that's more kind of non-denominational or... They're having that conversation. It is, as you can imagine, it's very controversial. I would say that it that replaced is probably not a word that I envision, but maybe a collection of symbols where you've got a cross, a crescent, and maybe a star of David in the same insignia might be something that can be used to represent the global movement. But as I said, it's it's one of those areas that touches a lot of, of the undercurrents of the politics between the countries. So if anything, we try, actually try to steer clear of it as much as possible. But the reality is, is that the fact that you just asked that question about the global movement of the Red Cross, it's obviously something that other people wonder about. And it would be helpful to have something that clearly indicates that it's a federation of different countries and national societies. Yeah. And I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but inclusivity is now more important than ever before, right? And what a great challenge to the creative community to come up with a universal, a new, modern, universal Red Cross symbol that represents all nations, nationalities, ethnicities, religions. is more inclusive than ever before. I think that's an amazing creative exercise, actually. It is, and, and I really encourage the Federation to take it on and to take it on with fervor. I, it's so easy to see an end product that would be so beneficial to the different countries around the world and, and also the people that they serve. It really is very easy to see. As I said, the process is a lot harder to, to make that happen. Yeah, I could see that. And in your role, you probably work very closely with communications but how do you navigate? You're in some ways in an enviable and a not so enviable position because you can do all the great things in the world that you do and you're always going to have critics, always. No matter what you do, it's never enough. And there's always going to be somebody that, that questions what you're doing. How do you handle that, both personally, but also kind of practically? How do you process that? The bigger picture of what it is that we're trying to accomplish is the thing that I think most Red Crosses are, are focused on. We are a mass response organization. So obviously, we are trying to help as many people in need as we possibly can. Are there those that in some occasions either get overlooked or don't get the quality of response or help that we would like them to get? Yes, of course. But the reality is, is that the millions of people that we help each year, and I'm talking not only in disaster, but people who are in need of blood or who are looking for training, or members of the armed services to whom we're providing support at army bases everywhere. This is what drives the Red Cross organization forward. It's really being able to make a huge difference to those people in need. And where we don't perform perfectly, we try to learn from it. We're not defensive about it. We are very open and transparent about acknowledging errors when we have them, or at least providing explanations to people that are looking for explanations. But the reality is, is that we do on occasion have issues and we try to learn as much as we can from it. And that's something that, that I give a lot of credit to the organization for. After a major disaster response, people are exhausted. They're absolutely flat out. They've been up 
straight for seven to 10 days in terms of the work that they're doing, but they don't miss a beat when the work ends to actually sit down and do an after-action response analysis and identify those areas that worked well and that didn't work well and to learn from it and to make change. So I think that ongoing sort of change management and learning is something that's really positive and a hugely important part of the Red Cross culture. I also feel, and I'm curious what you think about this, that this next generation coming through, Gen Z will be the largest representative generation starting in 2020. It's my kids. And I've never been more inspired, not just because they're sitting around me right now, but I've never been more inspired by a generation ever in my life and in my career, almost 50 years of living now. And they seem truly authentic when it comes to giving back and being a part of the fabric of society and really creating more meaning in the world in which they operate and they live in. You're so right. Authentic is, is a great word. The commitment to causes and the alignment of people to brands that do something positive for society is something that is what Gen Z is all about. And we are very cognizant of that. It's part of the reason why we ourselves partner with other iconic brands in the for-profit space. We are constantly working with companies in the technology space, in the healthcare space, to try to bring some attention to some aspect of the work that the Red Cross does. A good example of that is that we run a campaign called Missing Types. And Missing Types is intended to let people know that there's a constant need for blood. And the types that go missing are the type A, type B, and type O blood that is needed for people. So we've gotten companies like Adobe, Microsoft, Facebook, Nationwide, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, all during the month of June to take the A's, the B's, and the O's out of their name or to darken them in some way so that they can bring attention to the fact that there is this constant need for blood of all types. And that's the kind of thing that I think the Gen Zers love to see. They love to see these large brands that mean more from a social standpoint than just the products that they sell or the services they provide. That's very cool. I didn't know about that campaign. Is, is that something relatively new or relatively recent? We're actually in the third year, so I kind of wish you did know about it. But we copied the homework of actually the British Red Cross that did it about three years ago. And we have turned it into a national campaign. There are a few other Red Cross societies that also also carry out the Missing Types campaign. It's centered around World Blood Donor Day, which is generally in the middle of June. And it, it's at a time when we are going into summer months. And summer months are the months when blood is needed most. It's the time that school's out. So we don't have the benefit of high school and college blood drives. And it also tends to be a time when people are in situations in which they require blood after. One last question, sir, reminded me as we talk about summertime, and I know that Red Cross is not a political organization, but my feeling is that climate change and sustainability issues are not political. They're actually human-centered. But a lot of the disaster relief that you provide can be centered around things like, like you said, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, things that are brought on what most people think by climate change. Is there anything the Red Cross can do besides React, which is doing a lot on the front end in terms of education around issues like that? Or is that not something that you really get involved in? 
So where we're really trying to make an investment is in building resilient communities. There's no question that something is changing in the climate. I can tell you that just from the number of disasters that we're responding to each year, the both the level of intensity and the actual number of disasters, there's clear trends that indicate that both are heading north. What we do is we work with our suppliers, but also our partner organizations like NOAA, for instance, on weather, NOAA, in order to make sure that we've got every tool in our arsenal that will allow for communities to be as resilient as possible, to be prepared for disasters before they hit, and to be able to recover from disasters as quickly as time will allow. Yeah, it's sad, but it's just the reality. And I think it's probably going to get worse. It is. And it is unfortunately something that we've had to respond to and really confront. So Neil, it was really great having you on. And I appreciate the openness and the honesty and obviously everything that you do and how you're giving back personally, not just the Red Cross, but also and all of your other charities that you're involved in. And of course, I appreciate everything the Red Cross has done for everyone around the world, especially in the U.S. What is the best way to follow the Red Cross and also to stay in tune with where the needs are, whether it's financial or blood or human power? Well, first of all, you're awesome to ask that question, and I really appreciate it. We put a lot of effort into our digital media, and so probably the best place to stay in touch with the Red Cross or to donate, whether it's time, money, or blood, is at redcross.org. So it's R-E-D-C-R-O-S-S dot O-R-G. And we would be grateful for any of those categories that people want to step up and support. Thanks again, Neil. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com, follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast, and learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Thank you.